What's up, buds? Greg Young, and today, uh, making his second appearance, I think, on Japers Rink Radio, uh, we have uh, Michael Blake McCurdy. So, Micah, how are you doing today? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm well, I'm well, I'm well. It's, uh, you know, I, I I might have a little surprise for you at the end of the podcast that involves uh, your dulcet baritone, I think, to, to borrow a term that you used today, but we'll, uh, we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to that when we when we can. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely, uh, definitely, definitely great to have you on. But I think one of the first things I kind of wanted to dive into is... Um, so I think one of the things as a hockey fan that, uh, you know, kind of a league wide fan that I've been struggling with a little bit is really how to evaluate last year, uh, you know, being the weirdness of coming from the bubble to having fans it's sometimes in the building, not really to having sometimes half the teams in the league getting COVID or not. So I think I just like I mean, you watch a lot of NHL wide hockey. So I'm kind of curious, what are your like thoughts on the play so far? Just generally, do you think we're kind of. You know, and, and and judging on that, like how much analytical value do you place on last year versus just maybe we throw our hands up and say last year was weird? So, I mean, on the one hand, last year was weird, but it also like every single year we enjoy doing this same dance where we say, wow, can you believe some crazy result? Because there's always some team or some pair of teams that has some unusual craziness, especially if you only look at a quarter of the season. And so. On the one hand, it was crazy, but I'm not sure it was extra crazy. You know, this is pretty chaotic to start with. You certainly do notice some stylistic differences. Um, You notice a lot, a little more energy this year, I think, because teams are on a more sensible rest. Whereas, you know, last year, the the rest schedules, it's funny, the travel schedules were more, were gentler, but the rest schedules, the rest schedules were not. They were angry by comparison. And I, <laughs> well, they had to get what, like 50 games in, in like, what, like two months or whatever, or th- two, three months. So yeah, I mean, that, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And, and one of the, one of the like secret mini validations I've had about that is that when I've been doing my own work about what kind of schedule factors affect performance, I've consistently found to the annoyance of, of, you know, Vancouver fans and a handful of other West coast teams, I've consistently found that rest is a really big deal and travel just is not. And I, you know, people tell him blue in the face that it does not matter how long the airplane flight is. It does not matter how many time zones you have to change. These things have minimal effects that I can discern. It's funny, too, because if you ask players, they'll tell you, oh, man, stuff like that is killer. But then you look at it on the ice and you just don't see it. So obviously people, you know, and that's fascinating to me. From why, why, why do you think that is? I'm just curious. I, I don't have an explanation. In fact, if I like found out tomorrow that I was looking at it all wrong, that if you if you, you know, take the right frame or if you look at it just so, then you can, you know, it kind of has this prism quality, a lot of data, where if you turn it just right, then all of a sudden, you know, you can see all the way through. You know, if I, if that happened to me tomorrow, where all of a sudden I could unlock what was going on with travel and, and make it line up with what people say, I think that would be more emotionally satisfying to me. But I, you know, have tried many times and cannot do it. And yeah, and players are, are like, they don't have an extremely good grasp on what matters and what doesn't. It's, 
it's well, I mean, to some extent they wouldn't. Right. I mean, that's not really their job. If you think about it. Right. You know, their their job, I guess, is try to do the best given the circumstances. So, you know, I, I almost wonder, like with baseball, you talk sometimes like, oh, maybe a hitter doesn't need to know about all these advanced stats. Like maybe it actually makes it worse. Maybe maybe for a player, you know, the, the, the more that gets in your head, maybe it's actually not helpful. Yeah, I, I think there's I have a lot of time for that line of thinking. I, you know, so every now and again, people give me stick when I say stuff like, oh, you know, players aren't good at evaluating stuff. And but of course, you know, I don't pretend to be good at playing hockey. I can't even skate. So like <laughs> the, the the specialization there is is really intense. And, and that specialization at a particular level it kind of goes past what would make it easy to make those kinds of evaluations at like a level above, if you like. That kind of meta-analysis is almost antithetical to just, you know, I've trained for this. This is how I do it. This is perfect. This is the this is the way that it goes. And that's the athlete mentality is so different. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's 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 definitely kind of interesting to think about it that way, right? Because I think that there's it's it's definitely it's just a different kind of mindset that you have to have. I mean, like, obviously, hockey, it's going to be a little different than baseball, which is a hyper specialization in one exact skill. Although I guess goaltending probably would be somewhat similar to that in a way. But like, it's definitely it's definitely just a different world. And I think like the the amount of value that you that a it's just also just like there's different roles, right? Like, you know, your role analyzing hockey is going to be different than, you know, maybe a coach necessarily and maybe a player necessarily, right? They're all kind of different things. I think sometimes when you try to conflate the two or three, then it could kind of, you can end up in places that maybe don't make as much sense as you would think. I agree. And I, I'm increasingly thinking of coaches specifically as as having their role being this bridge role. Yeah. You know, to understand is one thing, to do it is a different thing. And it's it's all well and good to say, well, you know, the people who do those two different roles are two different roles, but you need to make them link up somehow, and which is itself a role. Yeah. And and traditionally I think we've called that coaching. And <laughs> I, and I think I think traditionally we've called that the realm of Daryl Sutter, right? <laughs> because I think he seems to be doing that again, at least defensively this year. Yeah, I, and I mean and he's got his warts, of course, just like all of the old style coaches do. And, and and of course, how old style he is is a matter of some debate. And and I, you know, like I like you just said, I've discovered, I've observed, you know, a big uptick in the Flames last year and also this year. And that was yeah. that was one of the few. Like, there's been a lot of predictions. You know, predictions is the name of the game, right? Where you try to understand what's going to happen. And there's been a number of the ones that I've made this summer that that I was a little bit cagey about you know you you try to do a disciplined model-based approach which means you're not really trusting your own gut you're trusting your own technical abilities instead and then you look at the predictions and you think oh, okay that one's great that one's great and then you look at some other things and you think well I'm not so sure about that and you know but if you trust that you've done what you've done correctly you just you know you just say well we'll see how that plays out and one of the ones that's been satisfying has been Sutter specifically the Flames defensively the defensive system on the ice looks really, really strong. Yes. You really saw that against Boston, huh? You know, like a very good offensive team that, you know, really like the Flames, like were went in there and held their own. Well, and part of it, part of why is the approach too, is that, and, and we'll probably talk about the, the caps in this context too, that one of the ways that you get really good defense, not just capable defense, but extremely good defense, is displaying a level of aggression that's not traditionally associated with defense. Yes. Where, where you have to you have to take risks. And if you're going to take risks on defense in the NHL, 
it's not so much that you need a good coach. It's that you cannot possibly do it with a bad coach. Yeah. You know, if, you have, if you have a coach who's who's going to light you up for making one tiny mistake, then it's, you know, every time you make a read that's not perfect, even if you're consistently helping the team, you're going to get lit up for the for the occasional mistakes, which is, well, they're not even mistakes. They're going to be called mistakes when what they really are is just the the necessary fact that if you're not throwing any interceptions, you're not trying hard enough on offense. It's sort of like a calculated gamble, right? You know, like you need to take the calculated gamble. But the thing with gambles is sometimes they don't work. Oh, well, and also people don't like to do the calculations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, there's a certain Capitals defensive pair that I think has two players that fit with that uh, very nicely. But um, I think before we do that, I mean, obviously we're, you know, eight minutes in. I think we got to talk about the Washington Capitals. That's kind of that's kind of why, why they why they let me still do this podcast. So, Micah, I actually listened to our podcast from last year. And the first thing we talked about was, uh, well, we talked about free agency, but then we, we talked about the Capitals window. And I think that going into the year, me and basically our, my entire site, you know, which has smart people and a lot of the Caps kind of blog this year, which has smart people, was like, all right, like this is a team that is the oldest in hockey. Um, and they you would think by kind of any conventional metric of a window that it has closed. But, you know, we look at it again and again, the Capitals are appear to be one of the best teams in hockey. They are getting, I think I would argue, underlying results that are reasonably commiserate with that kind of success. So I guess kind of it, it's tough because when you say, all right, like, do we need to rethink windows? You almost you don't want to say just one team would cause you to rethink. But I guess how do, how do you kind of square the concept of windows with the Washington Capitals right now? So I, I actually try not to think about like this word window. I understand what people mean by it, but I sort of trend away from it. I prefer when it comes to like a team building strategy, it's kind of not in very, very good fashion. And I don't have a lot of nerdy reasons to justify it. So I don't talk about it too much, but I prefer, <laughs> but I prefer a kind of continuous improvement style for, for a lot of team building kind of structure where every off season I would go and say, I wouldn't ever think to yourself, okay, today's the year. This is the year we're going to break it all up, or this is the year we're going to stay pat. I would just constantly try to nibble around the edges of every part of the team you know, thinking, oh, can I make a marginal improvement here? Can I make a marginal improvement there? Can I make a marginal improvement there? And just try to ratchet, ratchet, ratchet would be my natural instinct. Now, I don't know. I don't have some reason to suspect that that's best, but that's my my inclination. And so in particular, I think that kind of approach is especially appropriate trying to mesh it with the more traditional, like, oh, we're in this part of the cycle, you know, which has this this idea of we're going to open up a window at a particular time. The, sure. I think it meshes nicely with teams that are on the back end of that. You know, teams like the Capitals, teams like the Penguins, where, you know, the the best players on both of those teams clearly pass their primes. And yet, you know, if you are extremely good, then that stretch of being past your prime can still be very, very high quality. Yeah. And And so Ovechkin is visibly not who he used to be, and yet visibly still extremely good. And so... You know, and you see that statistically, although you have to be careful, you know, to specify, you know, good at what. And and so, you know, you got to you got to dig into all of those things. Right. And and this is part of why, like, I get so shirty with people who are like, oh, you know, is this player better than that player? And I say, like, I kind of got the job I got by refusing to ever answer questions like this. Like, I you, <laughs> again, you the know, answer what? is it's complicated. Right. I guess would have to be the had to be kind of your answer for almost everything. 
Sure. And every now and again, you're like, well, that guy's a schmuck and that guy is not. So I guess that's clear enough. But every time, every interesting question is, well, okay, are we looking at shooting? Are we looking at defense? Are we looking at penalty killing? You know, on and on and on and on. And then you can make informed decisions like that. And so that's that kind of fits with this like window extension kind of theory. Once you've got once you've got something good, you know, you don't want to just say, well, that means naturally we're going to decline into this and this. I mean, if you're running the team, you can't accept logic like that. You you really do want to do everything you can to to keep the car going until the wheels fall off completely. And then you say, ah, well, you know, now it's bad. And now we're going to do it differently. Mm-hmm. But you, you kind of want to like, just keep on running as long as you know, and don't look down. And you can see how far you can you can go off the side of the cliff before it before it falls apart. I mean, the this is the sort of traditional, we like this person, but they're going to get hit by a bus someday. Like, so we need to have some sort of strategy for what comes afterwards. You know, that's one thing. But then you have a shorter term thing where, you know, we still have Crosby and Malkin, if you're the Penguins, even though both of those are clearly showing cracks. We still have Alexander Ovechkin, who's stylistically set the tone for the Capitals for a decade now. You know, the, And so you're not going to stop doing that. You're going to go to that well until it actually goes dry, not just until you expect it's going to go dry. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, you look at the Capitals last year, right? They were like, again, hide for the division lead. You know, obviously, I think I think the what, what Capitals fans would say in response is that, you know, at times they and, and you look particularly at the Boston Bruins series in the playoffs, you know, that sometimes having the older roster kind of showed the cracks right there, you know, with a lot of players being hurt and all of that. But, you know, I mean, I guess like I. I, I would almost agree with you because I, I kind of don't one don't really know what the other approach would be at this point. Right. Like, you know, I, what are the Capitals going to do, like trade? Oh, that's going to back from like, obviously not. So, you know, I, I think I think the tinkering kind of approach makes a certain kind of sense. And also, you know, I mean, I trust a regular season sample size probably a lot more than I would in the playoffs. Well, and, and being a Caps fan kind of tends you towards that line of thinking when you have so many years. You know, a little bit like the Maple Leafs more recently, when you have so many years of regular season dominance and so few years of postseason dominance that I mean that that bends you towards that line of thinking, which I think is correct anyway from a league wide perspective. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean you, you talk about a postseason series that arguably changed for the worst, the trajectory of the Capitals, you think, of course, of the Halak series in 2010, right? That was a great Capitals roster that, you know, I mean, sometimes the answer is you just run into a hot goalie. And that's just the story. And I mean, obviously, it's more complicated than that, yada, yada. But like, I mean, it. I would I would say, like, I trust a president's trophy roster a lot more than I would trust, you know, in seven fluky kind of games against one team in, in one place. Right. You know, that's like it's a. I think it's tough because, you know, I think you could kind of see the limitations of an older roster at times, but sometimes maybe we think that that's the right approach and maybe it doesn't actually make more sense when you apply kind of a broader prism of thinking. Yeah. And, and you have to, one of the, one of the sort of overarching lessons of analytics as an, as an approach to hockey is that you do come to terms with just how much variance there is, just how much luck there is. You know, Warren Buffett likes to say that the market can, remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And, and the way the way that that plays out in hockey terms is that your resolve to respond rationally to what is going on is, as a rule, as we've seen over the years, is considerably weaker than, than the timescales necessary for you to deal with the storms of what can happen to you outside of your own control. And in yeah. fact, that the cap series that you were talking about, that it's not just that the approach was derailed. Like you can see that statistically in a handful of of areas, that the caps 
have been built on shooting talent for so many years. And a lot of and Ovechkin being obviously the, the you know, one enormous tentpole for that specifically. It's been his singular strength for so long that and the Caps as a team have been molded in that image, you know, for his entire time. Yeah. And and the only the only time that you see the Caps as a team shoot under their expected goals, so get fewer actual goals than you would expect from an expected goal model that's, of course, by design, pre-shooting talent. The only time that the Caps have had a shooting talent for a full season that looks below average is the year after they got halacked. Yep. <laughs> and, that, yeah. like, and so you see that, that I mean, they... Like they couldn't help losing the one year, but then then they cost themselves a great deal. And so one of the things that's been it's been an interesting subtext for me analytically because everything is so you know the whole culture of of analytics in in the five or six years that I've been doing it has been so shot driven, so shot volume driven especially, which I think is is correct. I don't disagree with that approach at all. But it's been important, and the Caps have been an, an excellent example of why been important to make the extra step of progress to say okay now once we understand shot volume now who is actually finishing well and who is not both at a team level and at a player level and until we did that i don't think we captured important aspects you know league-wide important but but in particular you know certain teams are going to show you those misses and the caps were one of those teams for a number of years yeah well, and I think it's it's interesting because I mean I uh you know when I when I kind of reached out for questions I had some people ask me about the Capitals and shooting percentage right because I think that one of the crazy stats Mike I actually pulled for one of my recent Japers Rink articles was so you look at um each you know each team per year of the last uh, since 2007 and eight and the last four Capitals teams have all ranked in the top like 20 in terms of five v five shooting percentage and so clearly you would say all right like they're doing something different and interesting here. And I think really this year and last year in a lot of ways, the Caps formula, I would say, has kind of been a ride a high shooting percentage, suppress other team shots, which is something that LaViolette seems to really do and and trots to an extent too. And I guess Reardon fits in there as well. Um, yep. And then just get average goaltending. And that seems to be something that works at least in the regular season for the Capitals. So I don't know. It's 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 I think it's maybe not the traditional way we think to win, but it, it seems to work for the Caps every year. No, no, I agree. And and certain like one of my coaching bugbears is that I like to say that you should coach to the you should coach the system to the players you've got. And, you know, in, and the Rangers are another team that have that have um, focused on a, a shooting percentage heavy strategy, although they've done it much more with rush shots than with um, offensive zone time cycling shots. And the Caps are kind of in between there. You know, there's some teams like the traditional Kings teams when they were winning Stanley Cups who had a very, very cycle heavy approach. And, and, and so those are always like my two poles for, you know, what is the in zone offense stylistically? You know, are we going to grind you down like the Kings did? Or are we going to get you with like a stiletto between the ribs like the Rangers do? And the Caps were, you know, more towards the Rangers side of of that, you know, not that the Rangers and the Kings are somehow the best at all, but especially considering the number of, of cups the Rangers have recently, but but just as stylistic poles, you know, that was that was the sort of axis you could fit teams on. And, you know, how much you needed your goalie to be excellent and how much you needed to make their success, make the team success out of the goalie success, you know, is again dependent on that. Whereas if you were, you know, if you were playing like the Rangers did, you needed to have an excellent goalie because you knew that 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 
that strategy of rush chances was going to lead to some number coming back. Yeah. And on the other hand, if you were playing a style, you know, a really, really heavy volume style like the Old Kings or like Carolina in recent years, then it was not as important to have an especially good goalie, which of course is why it was funny that the Hurricanes were undone so many years by, you know, not even league average goaltending. And traditionally horrible shooting percentage, right? Like, you know, that was, and then they, and then, I mean, you know, you draft low enough, you get some, get some really good forwards, and then you have probably maybe the best team in hockey, although I guess the Panthers would have something to argue about that. But it's definitely, it definitely shows that there's not, there's not always one way to skin a cat. No, and, and part of the trouble, too, is that you can say, well, this is the kind of team we want to have, and that's great and all, but you'll get the players that are available when you draft. Yep. And, and if you want to pick a sniper, then, you know, if you insist on getting a player of a particular type, then maybe you're not going to pick the best player at sixth overall anymore. And and so you have to make difficult choices about just how much you're willing to bend your system according to the draft capital that you have in front of you, because you can't control, you know, except to a limited extent, you can't control where you're going to draft. And there's not enough players to give you the kind of liquidity to say, well, you know, this is the team philosophy. This is how we do things. So this is what we're going to do. You know, if, if a totally different style of talent came to the fore in Washington, you know, I'm sort of, you know, looking forward five or 10 years or something when Ovechkin's no longer on the team and, and you have a totally different approach. You know, you might need to, to stylistically rethink the way that you approach the whole team. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, speaking of ways you approach things, I think one of the things that was interesting is uh, you had, so the Capitals played the Kraken yesterday and they lost because they had no rest, as we talked about. Uh, and they, I think they finally showed it at the end of a road trip. But I think one of the interesting things that Capitals, we, we kind of were, you know, appreciating a little bit about the, the way the two rosters were constructed is that the Capitals have basically gone league minimum on goaltending, right? Like they have two players in Vitek Manacek and Ilya Samsonov that are making not exactly league minimum in Samsonov's case, but pretty close to it. And, uh, you know, they they had opportunities, I think, to get another goalie if they wanted to. They, they chose not to. And, uh, you know, then you look at the Kraken and they went all in on goaltending. And <laughs> for some reason, the Capitals' goaltending has been a lot better than the Krakens this year. And in fact, the Krakens' goaltending of Grubauer and uh, the, the other guy, Fleur Drieger, is uh, really kind of letting them down in a, in a core way. So I guess... I don't know. Do you do you see a justification or a rationale for the Capitals just kind of going pure league minimum in goaltending? And, uh, you know, I'm also kind of curious, too, about, like, how do we evaluate goaltending? And it seems to me like we keep talking about goaltending being one of the last frontiers of analytics. And it, it seems like it's still tough for teams to really quantify what can make an effective goalie from year to year. Yeah, it's definitely tough. And, and I take some I take some solace in the fact that I was by no means the only person nor even the only person doing things in my style of doing things who predicted that Grubauer was going to be excellent for Seattle to be very, very wrong. Yeah. And the and of course, the what's going on goalie wise in Washington is is, you know, sort of also interesting. It hasn't had the same spotlight for obvious reasons. But and, and the goaltending in, in Washington has, as you say, you know, been kind of ordinary. On the better side of ordinary, but nothing, nothing to write home about. You know, six or seven-ish goals saved over expectation compared to, sorry, eleven and a half actually compared to what you'd expect from league average goaltending. And you know, eleven and a half goals over the course of however many games—that's definitely nothing to sneeze at. But it's not. You know, you wouldn't say, "Ha, look at the Caps goaltending. What a vindication of strategy." 
No, it hasn't it hasn't exactly been a Bobrovsky level this year, which is strange to say, but you know, here here we are. <laughs> well, and, and one of the things, of course, is that the part of what makes it so contentious is that the natural variance in goaltending is is just that high. That that because the position has such a high leverage, because every save or not save has such a high importance to the immediate emotional responses. You know, oh, we lost basically because our goaltender wasn't good enough, even though we were, even though the skaters were excellent. You know, that story happens repeatedly to every team, even the ones with the best goalies every year. You know, the natural variance is so large that that it can obscure what little progress we've made. And so in, in more obscure sort of nerdy statistical measures, I feel like we're getting a lot better at predicting goalies in the large. But in terms of saying, oh, you know, what's going to happen for this particular game, you know, the range of common outcomes is still, you know, basically any goalie who's good enough to make the NHL, which is which is already saying a lot, right? Like that's yeah. it's not just taking a goalie off the street. We're taking like the 0.001% of best goalies in the world. Right. You know, when you when you say, oh, so-and-so played in an NHL game, you know, you immediately know that that means a few hundred people over the course of their career, even if they're talking about like an 18 year old kid, like hundreds on the order of hundreds of people have watched that goalie play and said, I think he can play in the in the NHL. You know, you have to have that much in order to get that far, even if you just get constantly lit up when you're actually in the NHL. So the you know, the, the bar, the, the floor, if you like, is extremely high. But then for every goalie, you know, shutting out a good team and getting lit up and pulled in the first period are on the table for every goalie every time. And when, when the natural extent of per game outcomes is so broad, just because of the, the way the position is structured itself, you know, that, that puts a cap on how well you can do. And, but I kind of like it in a way, in a sort of perverse way. It's, I mean, it's definitely a thorn in the side. I spend a lot of time working on goals. And, you know, and I, I've noticed a couple of curious details about, like, the way that goalies seem to trend with Alain Vigneault's teams and, and other little, you know, sort of lurking, nagging thoughts at the corner of your consciousness where you think, am I doing this right? And, and so, I, you know, I'm always on the lookout for improving all of those methods. But, but I think once you understand the natural variance of the game game, positioning is as large as it is, that sets your expectations in a way that makes it all a little bit more sensible. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, like, I I remember, I think back to the, I don't know if you got the chance to read the Ken Dryden piece in The Atlantic about, um, you know, kind of goaltending and kind of the random variances of it. And I mean, his his point, which ended, ended with a culmination of just saying the Nets need to be bigger, but basically, you know, is that a lot of NHL team teams now involve you know, how to win in the NHL involves getting traffic to the net because goalies are just so good that they're going to see everything that they can stop. But if you think about it, you know, adding a lot of net front traffic is going to just naturally increase variance because, you know, you're depending on shot deflections and stuff like that, which is probably going to be a little more fluky than uh, or variable maybe than, you know, it might be with just like pure shooting talent and, uh, you know, kind of letting things ride on an open ice. So I think it's it's kind of interesting how I think at times the developments of the game have made it more difficult to evaluate goalies. That's definitely true. And you you see that in every sport, too, where where there's this constant sort of arms race between not not exactly players and other players or teams and other teams, but instead between the game as a whole and its own rules. Where yeah, where and analytics, of course, is, is part of this, 
where you're constantly looking, you know, the whole the whole money ballish idea from way back when is, you know, how can we get more efficiency per dollar, which is one thing. And then there's the how can we get more efficiency per roster spot? Or how can we get more efficiency per offensive zone play? Like what are we gonna are we gonna have set plays? Are they gonna have a particular structure? You know, all of those like can we get an edge here? Can we eke out an angle here? You know, drive the sport within its rules into particular corners. And and one of the things I wish the league as a as an institution would be a lot more responsive on would be, you know, I, I specifically think that Dryden's idea about enlarging the nets, it's funny, I, I read that article and I agreed with the entire logic, except did not agree with the conclusion that that you should fix it by making the nets bigger. You know, but but I appreciated the idea which I wish the league would take on of of actually choosing, actively choosing incentives in the rule structure of the game to make the sport better for fans. Yeah. Which adjacent, not precisely the same as easier to understand. Um, definitely not precisely the same as making my life easier as an analyst or an infrastructure maker or whatever my job actually is. But But there's not a lot of careful conscious discourse along those lines of what kind of sport do we want it to be and how are we making sure that the rules actually drive it in that direction a lot of fear of oh we might have some unexpected consequences and and so instead you just get inertia yeah yeah i mean it's it's the i i i think with some teams at least and i this is kind of branching off to a slightly different point but it seems like there's more of a fear of doing something that's going to get you fired versus trying to maybe take a chance that would you know, is going to actually like really help you in a way, you know, like I, you look at like every year there's players in the UFA market that you're like, oh, like that's a guy that I think could help a team, but you know, maybe he's going to make a mistake in his own zone and that, you know, it's, it's the kind of the quiet, you know, mediocrity seems at times safer for teams that, and the NHL, I guess, than you know, maybe trying to take a chance and having it not work. Absolutely. And you see, you know, those guys in free agency, you see them crop up year after year. Uh, and I was a little bit surprised, actually, to see Dougie Hamilton get the kind of, of you know, hype and attention that, that I was worried that he might not. But then Thomas Tatar, essentially no attention whatsoever, and just quietly went to New Jersey alongside him. Yeah. Yep. It's a lot of. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, every year, like one of the nice things about having done this job now for for a bunch of years in a row is that every every year I see just that little bit more of the mainstream thinking align with my own it might just be a certain amount of of pompousness or pride but but you see also a little bit more time a little bit more attention paid on you know guys who had great years driving play but didn't finish or were paired with other people who didn't finish and you know those classical like the sort of thing that gets you missed and loses you a ton of ufa money yeah and, but I, I think you know the, the blind spots are still there but i think you can see that they're going away people are just a tiny bit more uh, ready to take a risk. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely it's definitely interesting. Um, speaking of kind of things that you know challenge orthodoxy a little bit, I think one of the drums I've been beating, and I'll I'll ask this question and then we'll take a break. I, the uh, I know we had talked before, Mike, that you know I had a list of questions and that we were gonna not get to all of them, and uh, we definitely didn't. But that's actually good. I like that. Um, but one of the, I I kind of want to get your thoughts on one last thing, and then we'll take a break and then talk about some non-cap stuff on the other side. But 
I'm wondering, um, the, the Capitals have the oldest roster in the league, and I continue to think, and I've beaten at this drum a little bit, that there's probably some kind of role for load management for the Capitals this year, although I don't really know what that would be. So, I don't know, have you have you given any thought to load management? I mean, we've, we've talked about rest a little bit at the start of the show. Do you think that there's a team or two maybe, like, ready to embrace this? And what do you think kind of the benefits or, you know, disadvantage of, of, of that kind of approach could be? So I think you need to have a flexible a flexible coaching system, especially because I don't think a style of load management where you where you take your star players who are getting to the point where they need more recovery time. I don't think you can have a load management strategy where we're just going to play, say, Ovechkin for, you know, nine minutes a night yeah. the, and say, well, that's, you know, that's load management because he plays less. I think instead what you have to do. Of course, Ovechkin is playing much more than that even now. I think instead you want a strategy where it says, we're just not going to play him at all some nights. Yeah. And and he's going to be routinely, you know, we're going to call it healthy scratches because what else can we call it? But but we're going to know that what it really means is it means um, lengthening recovery time. So the whole team gets, you know, a back-to-back, but Ovechkin does not, and he'll play later on. And so on the one hand, you know, that causes cap problems because – you know, you have to be able to make an implicit deal with someone that says, we know we're not going to be getting, you know, 80 to 82 games from you a season. We're going to be getting fewer than that. And so that has to come out in some sort of cap consideration, you know, which is already its own trick, but, you know, not an unsolvable problem. But then you also have to have a coaching system that says, OK, we're not going to be playing with one of our best players this game by design. So yeah. we're going to have, have this is. And so, of course, I, you know, I use Ovechkin as an example because I'm talking to you. But. But the prototype in my mind for this um, was Daniel Alfredson with Ottawa. And of course, that ended acrimoniously. He was forced out by the owner. But that that ended differently than I was hoping. And even the previous year before that, I was hoping when he was clearly extremely good still, but also needed that extra recovery time because he was playing at the age of 39 or 40. You know, that's the approach that I hoped he would take. And I suggested it, you know, in a handful of different circles and, and got laughed out of the room a bunch of times because there's no, that approach of load management just doesn't have much currency in the NHL at all. And part of why is that if you say, well, he's our top line guy that we're talking about. And of course, you wouldn't bother to go jump through these hoops for a third liner. You, yeah. You know, only, you're, it's only an interesting conversation if you're talking about guys who are extremely good when they're on. But then all of a sudden you're blowing this big hole in your first line and who are you going to put there? And if they're not good, then the strategy is bad. And if they are good, where are you going to put them, those guys, when they're, when the guy that they're taking the spot of is in the lineup? So you need, you need a real flexibility of approach for, for lineups and rosters. You have, to, you have to rethink all of your chemistry ideas. You have to have a lot of confidence. Among other things, you have to sharply change your rosters after wins, which, which is already you know, not in the in the thought process of a lot of a lot of hockey teams. They have this kind of like cargo cult quality. You know, oh, yeah. we won, we didn't just win. We won big six nothing. So whatever we did, we're going to keep on doing it. Well, that's not a strategy because winning six nothing was never the plan. And you know, you take those points and you enjoy them and you, you like that's a great result. But but no one is thinking to themselves, I know that we're going to do whatever we did and therefore we're going to win big again. You know, that is is just magical thinking. Well, and it's also just not at all how the NHL is played these days, right? You know, like the six nothing games are, are really rare, and I mean it's more of a kind of three two to four three league than a than a six nothing league. 
Yeah, and those those results come and go. Like Columbus yeah. hung on Montreal a couple of years back, and you know, and people commentators on broadcasts like to say, you know, oh, if you're if you're losing by ten, you gotta you gotta like put this game in the memory hole and just take nothing away from it. And I often think that's just as true, if not truer, for the team who wins ten nothing. You can't you can't take that and say, well, that's you know going to inform our plan for the future when you when you have something which is so unrepresentative like that. Yeah. And and so, but the load management, I think, is gonna, I think, is gonna come up. We've started to see that that veteran players, and I don't just mean veteran players. I mean like at the end of their career players. So you know, guys that are not like 31, 32, but instead like 36, 37, 38, who have, you know, maybe one or two years left. I think there's a, a willingness that we've seen from a lot of those players, if they're in a situation that they like, to take cheap contracts. You know, Jason Spezza is playing for not much more than league minimum in Toronto. Uh, and it's kind of the from, Tampa specialty too, with with players. Now huh? you look at like a Corey Perry or something. Right, and part of why, and and like my immediate thought when we were talking about load management is you need a coaching strategy that tolerates it, which yeah. has two. One is you need the kind of coach who can communicate really well with his players to say, look, we're going to be changing the lineup even when we win, and so you know you're going to score and then get taken out of game. The you know taking up for the next game because we're going to make all of these changes and we have a plan that's larger than just oh let's hope we win yeah. and and so I think that the fact that that is happening in Tampa for instance for a number of years now is one of the details of how John Cooper is a really good coach and and they have a, a system and, and part of it too of course is that it it has a stylistic element too not just a quality element to coaching where. You know, if you have a coaching style that says that these players play like this and those players play like that, and if you're on top six, then you have you're supposed to play in one style, and if you're on the bottom six, you're supposed to play in a different style. That can really cramp your options. And if you're going to try to integrate an an aging star player and you're going to talk about load management, all of a sudden you're going to run into real problems there. But if instead you have a more like total hockey, Everybody does the same thing. The top guys get more minutes and they get the power play minutes and the bottom guys don't, but they play the same way when they're playing five on five. That makes it a lot easier to say, okay, you're out completely because we have to put this person in. But then maybe we're going to move you in next game to the bottom roster and we're going to move people around a lot more. And and you need a team focus, not just a these are the roles focus. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that's definitely interesting. And I think it, it's going to require a... I think an evolution that you're already seeing, right? I mean, like we already have clear load management in the sense that I think these days it would be seen as coaching malpractice to play a goalie in back-to-back games, right? Like, you know, so we're seeing it in that sense clearly, but, you know, I think it's, it's gonna, the, I think kind of applying it to forwards or defensemen, I guess, too, is gonna, is gonna kind of take a, I think more of a rethink. Yeah. Like you said, in terms of both how rosters are constructed and, you know, how the style of play that teams develop across, you know, kind of their team. So with that, we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to talk about some uh, more NHL wide topics. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Japers and Radio. Still here with Micah and Micah. Um, I, you know, we're going to, we're going to cut kind of our last bit of the agenda a tiny bit short because we went long on the first part, which was wonderful. But one of the things I want to, I want to ask you about Carolina. Um, Carolina seems like they're, Maybe the class of hockey, it seems like they're definitely a class of the East at this point. So I guess I one of the things that was interesting is, you know, you, you talk about the goaltending swap there, and it seems to have, 
I think everyone was saying, oh, well, their goaltending got worse. And yeah, they lost Dougie Hamilton, but, you know, they're going to recompensate in different ways and everything like that. But their goaltending clearly got worse, except that maybe it didn't. Um, it kind of goes to what we were talking about earlier about uh, maybe struggling to evaluate goaltenders. And I guess maybe Frederick Anderson fits in there. But I guess kind of what are what are you saying about Carolina, you know, they're, they're, the formula for them, at least this year, seems a little bit different because analytically they seem like they're good but not great. But obviously they're producing really, really strong underlying results uh, or overall results. So kind of what are you seeing with Carolina and kind of what do you think is the message it sends to the rest of the NHL? So we were talking earlier about making stylistic adjustments to new players, new really good players as you get them. And, and one of the things that I think Carolina has done really well is adapted to a handful of players who did not fit their old style particularly well. And, and the two that I'm thinking of off the top of my head are Sebastian Ajo and um, uh, Andrei Svechnikov, who, and of course there's, there's many other important players there, but, but those two played a style that was uh, a little bit more rush centric, a little bit more Finnish centric than the style that they played before those two had major roles on the team. And so they've had to retool in a way that that suits them. And so they've gotten defensively weaker. And and so they're not they don't have that sort of analytics darling, you know, massive shot volume quality to them that that uh, sort of attracted attention years ago, sure. but also carefully shored up a lot of other problems. And so the goaltending, you know, I thought it was a little bit precipitous the way that they blew it up. But then when you look at the at the quality that they they assembled anyway you know anderson followed by ranta is is not a bad tandem by any stretch and and even ranta think, in particular a very good second goalie you would say as long as he can stay healthy exactly and of course health is is you know i don't i don't know anything about sports science i'm not a kinesiologist i don't like i don't try to predict injuries in any way and i, I get a little bit tired when people say oh you know so-and-so is always hurt you know it's hardly his fault and that is a bit nebulous to discern but on the one hand, they have overperformed in goal, I think, compared to their natural talents, but not by very much. And part of why you can have that be true and still dominate in wins is that there aren't any serious weaknesses anywhere on the entire team. Yeah. And and that's that's more of a complete like an attention to detail sort of quality where, you know, the penalty kill is one of the best in the leagues and the power play is strong and the offense is really good and has that structure where all of the players on the team can play to the same style. And that makes it, that makes you a little bit more resilient to, Oh, we're going to have to move this guy in or we're going to have to move that guy out or the whims of we're going to completely retool the goaltending or we're going to completely redo the, you know, now all of a sudden we have Anthony D'Angelo and Ethan Bear who are both going to play huge minutes for us. And they weren't on the team last year. And, you know, you're going to have to take Dougie Hamilton's minutes between you as well as we're going to spread it around even more. You know, Brandon Smith is new. Like so much movement, so much change in players, which is it's not a virtue exactly. It's more just an unavoidable fact that that if you're playing in a cap system at all. And then, of course, you have the specific ownerships concerns about spending money here and not spending there, that that's going to cause you to have more turnover. And I think part of why they've been so successful is that they have. A superstructure, both in the front office and for coaches, that's flexible that way. You don't have a, a style that says we have to play this way. We need to have players of this type. You know, they're not making trades for Ryan Reeves at the expense of of what makes the team really good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's it's definitely it's definitely interesting because I mean I think that 
you know, one of the things that we I, I saw, you know, kind of in Dom's model that the teams that did the best in the offseason, at least it were consistently teams kind of in the bottom of the standings. And so, you know, I think at last kind of offseason, you saw in a real way, you know, the just the cap, the hard cap transfer of elite talent from or maybe not even elite, but good talent from, you know, great teams to not so great teams. But, you know, it's it's interesting how some of the, you know, great teams have been able to adjust and maybe how maybe like a Penguins have maybe an Islanders, I guess, to a lesser extent, have kind of struggled making those same adjustments. So it's it's definitely, I don't know, it's, it's definitely kind of interesting to see how teams are successful in cases like Carolina. And I guess Washington, although their roster is very kind of, continu- you know, it's very continuity focused. But I think it's interesting to kind of see how teams have been able to make these adjustments and still kind of stay on top versus the other teams that have struggled. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, uh, I guess I, I kind of want to close this out a little bit with a couple of analytic-y questions. Um, you're someone that watches a lot of hockey, and uh, I always I always like asking this kind of question at the end because I never know what direction a guest is going to take it. But uh, I don't know. What's something that's catching your eye this year? Just a broad question. Like, what's what, what's something NHL-wide that's going on this year that, that, you, that seems of note to you early? Uh, I'm noticing a lot more um, aggression on defense from players who are not themselves offensive threats. Okay. I really like it. The, Ah. and part of an an aggression, primarily aggression in zone aggression. And, and so part of why this is one of those things where I'm not sure, is it really happening more than it used to, or is it just, am I noticing it more because I'm looking for it? But one of the things that, that was a common problem in, in the league as a whole, when I started doing analytics work, so that's like 2015, one of the common problems was forwards especially, but also defenders, who played an in-zone style that was so incredibly passive that that they did, it felt, when you watch them, did little else than shovel the puck out of their zone. They're generally pretty good at getting the puck from their opponents. They were normally quite strong and were happy to hit their opponents who always had the puck and therefore were easy to hit. And, and they would take the puck from them and they would just shovel it into the neutral zone and then they would kind of put their hands on their knees and wait for the puck to come back and and no risks were taken at any time and and so you just watch them get hemmed in there's a you know colt nor and the maple leafs was a real uh, kind of stalwart for this kind of thing but every team had a, a, a an affinity however mild or strong for this line of thinking and that kind of play has has been more or less completely drummed out of the league and what's replaced it though is not a a generation of offensive superstars although there's certainly a little bit of that you know people love to tout guys like Kale McCarr and Adam Fox and like you know legitimate offensive players who just happen to be defenders by position but you know that's and that that generates a lot of headlines and I don't mind that at all but what's been interesting to me is looking at the way that the lower depth chart defender positions have evolved and so you see guys who are making a name for themselves as third liners because they, sorry, as third pair or second pair defenders who take risks in their offensive zone, but not risks in the offensive zone. So they're, and so part of why is that people are starting to realize that those risks, they pay off defensively sooner and more reliably than they pay off offensively. Where, you know, if you can, if you can challenge a guy on a zone, a zone entry, if you can step up and, and deny an entry completely, you know, even if nothing useful happens in terms of your team getting the puck there, that's already, if nothing else, a regroup that you're forcing the other team to make in the other zone. 
probably can get yourself a change. Certainly you can get yourself 15 seconds, maybe 30 with good luck. The, and even if it doesn't lead to anything for your team, you have an immediate defensive payoff. And I, I mean, I always I always think on the penalty kill, right, of like, you know, it's easy, easier for an announcer to say, oh, look at the great job that player did denying an entry through the blue line. Right. But I think there's value in a player that can kind of disrupt things earlier on, you know, even maybe in the other zone and kind of just cause chaos and cause that kind of regrouping. I think that there's value, even if it's tougher to maybe define. Yeah. And of course, on the penalty kill, all of the. Part of why I like looking at special teams, even though there's less data for it, is that the sort of philosophical things are so much clearer. You know, if you step up on a guy in your own blue line and he burns you when you're shorthanded, you are so screwed. And <laughs> and the comparison, the like, and the same is true for five on five, just not as intense. And you know, where there's that extra guy who is probably behind you, and you know, who could in principle cover for you or maybe cover for who the guy who's going to cover for you, and and so you. But on the other hand, because the penalty kill is time limited, if you can take away time, then you can get yourself a lot of benefit anyway. You know, even if it doesn't quite go right, even if the play breaks a little bit, even if you have to like run around a little bit versus, oh, no, we're going to maintain our structure. We're not going to take any risks. And so we're just going to let them pick us apart. Yeah. And and so that that move I've, I've noticed in the teams that play the best defense. And sometimes you see that in teams that don't have a particularly strong offense, and then it's somehow even even more obvious. Like Calgary this year, we were talking with them. Like they've they've been based almost entirely on on defensive system this year, and to a lesser extent, the a lot of the capital success is coming from that same that same instinct, which is percolating down through not through their best players, who are still offensively minded, but through defensive risks from their lower on the depth chart spots like a garnet hathaway i think is always a good example of that right right and hathaway has a has i mean maybe cast fans who watch more of him will will disagree with me but i i see stylistically you know not a ton of hockey iq but instead a good bit of speed and a, a good stick use mm-hmm. and and that comes with that fits with a kind of be aggressive even if there's no complicated plan strategy <laughs> when you, because because you can be aggressive when your stick work is good, you can be disruptive, which is not so useful offensively, but very useful defensively. Yes. And but by nature, when you're doing that, when you screw up, the screw ups are going to be close to your net. And so, you know, if you only look at the bad things that happen, if you only consider defense to be what did happen to us that we didn't like, and if you never look at how long did we go between those bad things you know if you, you have to look at the negations as well and this is part of why you know in some sense it's extremely basic but it it bears repeating that if you say well you know we had three breakdowns and so that's really bad well did you have three breakdowns in that period or did you have three breakdowns in that game because one of yeah. those things is, right it's not the same amount of bad it's three times better if that's yes. in the versus in the period and so the only way to measure that is if you don't just count bad things but you look at rates how often? And, and mm-hmm. so, like one of the things that I, one of the, this particular lesson I think is important on defense, but I really like to think of it on offense. You know, every now and again, you'll see some guy on a highlight and just watching crazy highlights and you'll see, oh, so-and-so, I didn't know he had it in him to 
pull some crazy toe drag to deke some guy out, you know, like that Merrick Malik shootout attempt from forever ago. <laughs> Against the Washington Capitals, of course. I actually that's, remember that's that. Right. <laughs> this, this came up since so we were talking about it again. Like, a lot of the time you see like an incredible offensive play and and if you, if it's against your team you know you look at that and you think well you know that's good for so and so but really that's you know schmuck who should not have allowed whatever that was yeah. like that yes Malik, that attempt that everybody knows Kolzik plays it fine yeah he he comes across he's not too aggressive he's in position and and the shot is too good like <laughs> that's part of and that's part of what makes it really good right it's it's people you read it as fluky because Malik doesn't have the the reputation but it's extremely well executed. And part of the, and the point, the reason I'm telling the story is that it's not a question of, can you, the question is how often? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, every, every, like we were talking about earlier that every yeah. NHLer has this baseline competence, which yeah. is extremely high. And, and so it's not that they don't have these moves. It's, and it's not that breakdowns aren't going to happen. So you can't just say, Oh, we don't, we're not going to like that guy. I remember three of his incredibly bad breakdowns from, you know, and, and last night is a great example, for instance, where, where Kuznetsov caused that, um, you know, had that great forecheck that caused that first Capitals goal. Yep. And so it's easy to look at that. And lots of Seattle fans did look at that and say, well, you know, that's that's just terrible in zone defense. It's a brutal, brutal cough up where we could have eaten the puck on the wall, but instead he tries to make a play. And so he gets forechecked. And so it's in the back of the net, just like that. And there's a truth to that. But you really need to get any kind of systematic evaluation you really need a logic that's not does this happen or doesn't this happen and is instead how often are these things happening putting it on a gradient kind of in a way you know because the game is only 60 minutes long and the power plays are only two minutes long and the strategies like everything you do the shifts can only be so long you know all of those you know the rules themselves and the limits of human physical performance put caps on the time but they don't put caps on the stuff. And that asymmetry means that you really have to look at rates. This is one of those things where I'm actually a bit disappointed that the league as a whole has barely changed at all, you know, where we're still just counting numbers of goals, numbers of points without... Well, we talk about that with, like, um, you know, one of the difficulties of uh, load management, right, is that that's how contracts are based. And so, I mean, of course, players aren't going to be interested in it if their next contract's going to be decided not by how many what their rate goal stat is or what their rate kind of possession stats are going to be, but it's going to be based on a total round number. Right. And so that, that's just one of the pain points where, you know, you try to do something new. And even if you're exactly right, and even if you have complete buy-in from everybody, you know, that you actually speak to, you're still going to run into issues like that where the culture of the sport, the habits, the traditions are baked in, in sometimes helpfully and sometimes not. And you still have to contend with them either way. Well, and that's why I think having a guy like a, you know, I always try to, even if, even if it's maybe not my lane of analysis as much, you know, I always try to read something like what an Elliot Friedman would write because he's going to have a different angle because he's plugged into different sources than I would be. And it's just, I think it's important to kind of get that perspective, even if you maybe don't always agree with kind of the way it is, it's just kind of getting different roles in your brain and you can say this is right or wrong, but I think it's important to have that kind of perspective to at least be aware of it. Yeah, even if you decide that the, that those people, quote unquote, those people are completely wrong, you know, if you're going to overcome them, you, you need to know how. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whether they're your friends or your enemies or neither, like in both cases, in all cases, you you have to understand, especially because a lot of the like traditional elements of the way the sport is arranged have very sensible 
origins that even the people who love the tr specific traditions don't quite remember. <laughs> and so when you say stasis well, we is a thing in every league or every <laughs> everything, I would say in a way. Anything with humans in it. So yep. this is this, this way because it's the way we've always done it, just because that's how humans remember stuff. But then, you know, once you start to change it, sometimes you get that immediate payoff. And then a few months down the road, you go, oh, yeah, that's why we used to always do it yeah. that way. And, and then, you know, you can either revert back to the old way. Sometimes you just realize that you made a big mistake. But other times, you know, only in a delayed stage do you say, OK, now we have a new problem to solve, which is not the problem we thought we were originally solving. And you have to synthesize all those things together. And, you know, if you're really, really on top of the game, it's difficult to do. You can try to you know, anticipate all of these things ahead of time. But in practice, when you have a complicated system, which every hockey team, every hockey game is, you know, with other people responding to the choices you make as well with their own choices, you know, that you that flexibility, you're going to need it at that level, too. There's been a sort of recurring theme for this whole this whole interview where you've got that flexibility at a bunch of different levels, which is increasingly important, not decreasing. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. All right, well, we've been uh, 56 or so minutes in. Uh, Micah, uh, on Twitter, you had mentioned that no one had ever asked you to sing yet. Uh, I will ask, but let you decline if you so choose. Uh, but I, I appreciate you giving us your uh, dulcet baritone, I guess, right, is the phrase you used for your other, other podcast appearance. But uh, I, I guess it is Thanksgiving. So if, if you have any Thanksgiving thing, well, maybe, okay, maybe I'll ask it this way. Like, um, what, well, you're, you're a music guy. Like, what's something good you've listened to? And uh, if you want to sing a little bit, I don't really know what you want to sing, but you you can you can go. The floor is yours. <laughs> I, I appreciate <laughs> the thought, but I'm afraid today I must I must demur. Ah, uh, that's okay. I'll, I'll so forgive stay, you. Uh, but, but now you can at least say someone has uh, has asked you to do it, right? I, I will indeed. And in fact, another time, I, the reason I say no today is is not for shyness, but uh, I have a, a cold, mercifully not COVID. We have checked. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that I acquired from my daughter, and uh, it has a even talking for however long is I think about the limits of my excursions today. Um, right. But I'll have to like queue up a, a Stan Rogers ballad or something for my next hockey podcast. Oh, I like that. All right. Well, next time we have you on, uh, that'll be. We'll just have the second half just be a just be a karaoke between the two of us, and uh, we'll see how many how big the drop off can be for a podcast. Can we can we go from you know thousands of listeners to to zero in you know the course of uh, two minutes? I, I would that would be an interesting interesting experiment, I guess, from a different kind of angle. We could make it hockey themed. I could do like a you know what is that Fallout Boy song that all the arenas love? I oh see. God, the 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 yeah. The bonded, I, I don't know. I'm I'm not gonna try to sing because uh, my, <laughs> as my fiance will readily tell me, uh, the she always tries to shut the bathroom door because the sh me me in the shower is kind of unbearable from a singing standpoint. But uh, you know, lately it's been a lot of Marvin Gaye. Not that anyone needed to know that, but now you do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, but uh, my I think I think I'm gonna call it a wrap. Uh, we're we're at almost an hour. We said we said 30 minutes, so we went a, we went a little over. But uh, I this is this has been a blast. Uh, where can people find you? At and uh, oh, real, real quick, before we do that, I want to implore my fans, uh, please subscribe to Hockey Viz. It is an essential reference. Micah is someone that has worked with us before at Japers Rank and Hockey Viz. And it's, uh, I, I really genuinely cannot recommend enough to people subscribe. It is a wonderful resource. It will make you seem smart. You can also get access to all of the charts you want instead of having, you know, annoying people like me post them when we feel like it. I cannot recommend it enough. So uh, with that being said, Micah, how about, how about you flex some stuff? Where can people find you and your various work. 
so the the easiest way to find me is on Twitter, where I'm at ineffective math, not effective math, but ineffective math. It's a, an in joke about how I couldn't get a job as a mathematician, ah. and well, at least not until I melded it with hockey. Yeah. Um, well, there you go. The website is hockeyviz.com. It's hockeyviz.com, all one word. Uh, I, I like to tell people it has three tiers. A good chunk of it is free. So if you don't want to give me money or you don't have it to give me, you should feel free to just poke around the fun stuff, which is free. Um, every now and again, if you run into something that you would really like and you get a little message that says you have to give me money, uh, it's reasonably easy to do so. Um, you can sign up straight through the website and it costs either $5 or $10 a month, depending on how fancy you want to be. And uh, it's it's become over the, slowly over the course of several years it's become my full time job and I have to say it's it's the most rewarding job I've had over many many years so I'm probably gonna have to change the Twitter handle at some point you know because it's it's been too successful in hockey I was gonna say you, you can maybe is is effective is uh, what does it say effective math uh, a, a a possible Twitter handle we'll have to I guess we'll have to explore I assume somebody's already taken it to parody me ah. Devastating. Well, uh, I uh, we can we can always uh, you know try to try to arrange a popular uprising or something. Although uh, I don't I don't really know how effective that would be on Twitter. But uh, Micah, this has been a blast. Uh, real quick, if people like the show, uh, please rate, rate, subscribe, review. Uh, we there's now more Capitals podcasts out there, uh, but only one of them is going to feature a you know hour plus long episode with Micah that ends with me asking him to sing something. So uh, you know that's I think that deserves all the five star reviews. So uh, yeah, if you like the show, please rate or subscribe to view. You can find me at the at Greg Y underscore Jr. You can find the show at at Japers Rink Radio, and uh, you can find uh, the website at Japers Rink. And uh, I've been writing there somewhat regularly this year, so I'm going to hope hopefully uh, keep that going. So uh, Micah, with that, thank you so much for coming on. It was a blast. Thank you.